Welcome to Episode 7 of Streams and Variations, the podcast where writing evolves. In the show, you will first hear a monologue based on a song prompt. That monologue has then been passed on to a songwriter who has written a song inspired by the monologue. That song is then passed on to a writer who writes a monologue based on that song. Then on to another songwriter, and so on. Like a game of broken telephone, each writer has only seen the work that immediately precedes their own. What elements of each piece will carry through? What recurring ideas and themes will we see? What changes will arise from the mind of each new artist? Let's find out. My name is Jamie Johnson, and I'll be your host. I'd like to say I remember the first story I wrote. I'd like to, but I can't. It's lost, along with many others, in the recesses of my mind, or in the recycling box, or because of a cracked motherboard in a desktop PC. But I remember the impulse to write started very early in my life. Because for me, stories are a way to put a face on the things that happen around me all the time. The story becomes the grounding of these experiences that come together in a set of words that I can then face, that I can control and put some meaning to. And whether it is through song or dialogue, that's what we've asked our artists to do. Like all of our writing streams, we've brought together the talents of six creators and placed them on strict deadlines. Each piece you will hear was created over the course of one week, and these new creations became the basis for the pieces that follow them. Listen closely and try to find the threads that bind the stories together. Try to see what each new creator brings to the process. See how the story evolves. The talkback for this stream, Episode 7, will be released on May 16th. These talkbacks, discussions between myself, co-producer Sean Erker, and artists from the stream give a look into the creative process. Listen in as we discover how these storytellers work. Hear how our impression of these pieces change as we reveal what the artists see. These artists are an integral part of this storytelling experience. Their perceptions are what drive the process forward. Listen in as we find our way through the evolution of the story. Each full episode in Talkback is available through our website, or you can subscribe through your preferred service so you don't miss any stories based on songs based on stories. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to tell people. Your friends, or your enemies, or your mom, or your dad. Great Aunt Clara with the bad hip. She might like it too. This episode contains monologues written by Stephen Elliott Jackson, Ron Fromstein, and Emily Komiyama. These monologues are performed by Jordan Hall, Loren Hereda, and Patricia Casey. And it contains songs written and performed by Winter Rowan, Tyler Check, and Julie Neff. So sit back, listen intently, and let these artists carry you through this stream and its variations. Monologue 1. The War. Written by Stephen Elliott Jackson. Performed by Jordan Hall. It's my wedding day. Joan stands right next to me, her soft hands held by my own. There's a group of people in front of me smiling. He comes to me and straightens the knot. He tells me to look down, but I will not look down. I'm not ashamed. I'm proud today, and I refuse to think differently. This will be the most important day of my life. I was standing on a street corner in the Seventh Ward in Philadelphia. I'd just moved there and was exploring my new home, leaving my southern life behind. There in the shop window was a radio blaring his voice. We didn't know if we should believe him. President Wilson was not known for telling us the truth. He said that he understood the plight of the colored man in America. (laughs) And we believed him. And then he did the opposite. He separated us from the white people. He dismissed colored men from their jobs. Then he invited that despicable movie, The Birth of a Nation, to be shown in the White House. President Wilson was not someone who understood the colored man. And now he was announcing that we would enter the war in Europe. 
The Lusitania had been sunk in international waters by a German sub, and now we must act. Before he could say the words, I declare war, men were lining up to fight. I didn't know what I should do. Why was this war even needed? What were we going to fight for? America had not been the beautiful place for colored men. But despite that, it was my home. I loved America, even with its most egregious flaws. I saw lots of colored men starting to line up too. I couldn't be the only one who wondered why. And then I saw my mom and papa not long after the announcement when I visited home in Virginia. And they told it to me straight. America was made by colored people. Never forget that. Your grandfather and grandmother and all of them before that died for this country whether or not it wanted to see them. It may not be perfect, but it's ours. Hmm. Yeah, it was hard to not understand what they were saying. So three days later, I was back in Philly enlisting in the army. The day I signed up, I saw a white man who could have been my father's age doing the same thing. His daughter standing next to him. She was scared and holding his hand, uh, maybe a year or two younger than me. She saw me too. Of course, we were on opposite sides of the room. Segregated, but going in the same direction. I smiled at her, you know, trying not to look too obvious. <laughs> and I, that could get me into a mess of trouble. But man, she was so pretty. Brown hair, the green eyes that glowed across the room. I just knew I had to talk to her. So I stood outside the enlistment office and waited until she came out. She saw me and made some excuse to her father, kissing his cheek goodbye. So I walked down to an alley where it was quieter and she followed me. I said to her, uh, <clears throat> my name is Billy. <laughs> she said her name was Joan. And just like that, we connected. Yeah, my mama always said that I never did nothing the easy way. I could have had any colored girl I wanted, and I knew that. I wasn't the most handsome man, but I had my looks. But there was something special about Joan. So we started seeing each other when we could, secretly from the eyes of the world. But soon I would have to leave. I asked for a picture to hold with me, and before long, I was on a boat to Europe. Separated away from the white folks, the colored men got the smallest area of the boat, a fact not lost on any of us. Uh, the food was okay, but we knew it was better on the other side of the boat. We landed in France, and soon the realities of war became clear. Sure, they tried to separate us, white regiments who did the fighting and colored regiments who did the grunt work. But in the chaos of war, the lines became blurred. Sure, we planned and prepared ourselves, but you can't predict how fate will come your way. One evening, the night before a major battle, my regiment was placed right next to a white one. And I saw him. Joan's father. I guess I was staring too long and he saw me too. I didn't know what to do. Should I keep looking or should I look away? No. I will not be ashamed. I will not look down. He walked over and asked my name. I told him, and as if fate had a mind of its own, he told me that I was the man dating his daughter. I probably should have run, maybe deny everything he said, but he knew it all. I said I was, and showed him the picture in my pocket. Now, I knew better than to talk to a white man with a gun in his hands. Like I said, I should have run, but then the most amazing thing happened. He smiled. A white man smiled at me, and it wasn't meant any more than he was happy. He looked around and said, uh, We're all here for the same reason, and no bullet or gas discriminated who it would find. He just found someone. War changes things. He knew that as well as any soldier. He placed his hand on my shoulder and told me, Treat her well. I told him I would. 
I never saw him again. The bullet did find him after all. He wouldn't go home. Me, on the other hand, was a different story. The bullet found me too, but it was just made for injury. I was on a boat home, a small limp, and in my service. How peculiar it is that fate decides who might live, who might die. When I returned to Philly, now a year later, I went to Joan first. By then she knew about her father, so I told her about meeting him. We resumed our secret love affair, but not for long. I eventually met her mother. It was during a parade that September, but it wasn't to celebrate any of the men who came home. It was the end of influenza. They wouldn't throw a parade for us now. But for her father, death has its own kind of fame. She seemed like a nice enough woman, but she was very upset at her daughter's choice in suitor. But even when her mother forbade her to see me, Joan ignored her. Now by this time, I was getting tired of Philly. It tried to play itself off as being a better place, but being black was no different. It's easy to forget about that when you have a war and a disease to deal with. So I decided to go home to Virginia. Joan decided to come with me, leaving her mother fuming and leaving the only safety that she knew. I'm not even sure what we were thinking. A white girl couldn't even be seen in the same car as a colored boy, let alone date one. Now, I'm not even talking about the legality of the situation. I'm talking about the danger. So Joan hid in the car as I avoided what I knew to be the worst areas of the drive. And somehow, through an act of God, we made it to my mama and papa's place in one piece. Though we had zero idea of what we would do. All I knew was that I loved Joan and she loved me. Mama and Papa saw that. And they were as scared as anyone as what this all meant. Like I said, I never had done anything the easy way. I think I seriously thought that I could make this work. Joan had no idea how deep the hate grew. So I tried to take her back. Told her that this was a mistake. Joan wouldn't have it. I told her I would come back too, that I didn't have to stay here either. Joan knew I was lying. Said that this was my home. Yeah, we were messed up for sure. So we stayed hidden from the world in my mama and papa's house. Of course, people like us couldn't stay hidden too long. We knew we had to run. It was clear as day. But that meant never seeing my mama and papa for a long time. We decided that night to get married. Even if it was in this little house. My papa, with his Bible, brought our lives together. And there were tears, not only of joy, but sadness of the escape. Joan and I got on the road. We really thought we could make it to the border. But the one very real truth of the racist person is their persistence to make sure no one can live their lives the way they want. Five cars pulled us over and yanked us out. Joan had to watch every punch and kick that was laid into me. She screamed for them to stop, but that only made it worse. One quick hit and she was quiet. They dragged our bodies over to a tree, bleeding and beaten. Before us, two nooses hung from the sturdiest of trees. The south seemed filled with them both. We were dragged up a set of steps and they draped the nooses around our necks. Joan was standing next to me, her soft hand in mine, until that sight disgusted our hangman and he broke them apart. I stared down at the smiling faces, so proud of what they had accomplished. Some brought cameras to take pictures of the hanging nigger and his white bride. They would make them into postcards for future generations to see. The hangman tightened the knot at my neck. He told me to look down, but I refused. I would not look down. I heard Joan next to me trying to speak, but her step was kicked out from beneath her and within moments. Joan was no longer there. Some people would think that I deserved the punishment for what we did. 
that I should feel shame. I love this woman, and love is nothing to be ashamed of. I'm proud today, and I refuse to think differently. This will be the most important day of my life. I stared straight ahead into the night sky. The sun was rising in the east. The stars were disappearing. Below me, the step is pushed away and I feel the cinching of the rope on my neck. I can see the red sun dawning. I can see the morning dew in the air. I can see... Song 1, Pissing Contest Written and performed by Winter Rowan Promenade of black widows and the 
Monologue 2. Dream How You Dream How You Dream. Written by Ron Fromstein. Performed by Loren Hereda. Really? 
one way or the other or more corn. Not like there was, anyway. The stalks have gotten smaller, normal or normal, and soon give way to brown dirt and brown to black, dirt to rock, craggly and scattered. Good old craggy rock. And it's still again. Or it's still, still. Song 2, Shadows in the Dark, written and performed by Tyler Check. Out here, well it feels 
like I can see forever. But what's real is that you're waiting for me, and I can see up above me the wind howling in the trees as it shakes the birds free, and the sun beats down. The sun beats down on me. Let the wind whip round and knock me to my knees. Then the sun goes down and I can hardly see as I look around what I have found. My shadow in the dark. I'm seeing shadows in the dark. These shadows in the dark tearing me apart. These shadows in the dark. These shadows in the dark. Well, it tears me apart. Out here. Well, it feels like I have seen forever, but what's real is you're done waiting for me. And as I see up above me the wind howling in the trees, it shakes my words free. Let the sun beat down. The sun beat down on me. Let the wind whip round and knock me to my knees. Then the sun goes down and I can hardly see as I look around what I have found. My shadow in the dark. I'm seeing shadows in the dark. These shadows in the dark tearing me apart. These shadows in the dark. These shadows in the dark. Well, it tears me apart. Seeing shadows in the dark. Oh, these shadows in the dark, tearing me apart. These shadows in the dark. Oh, these shadows in the dark. Well, it tears me apart. Monologue three, my sunflower half, written by Emily Komiyama, performed by Patricia Casey. Oh. Hmm. The horizontal strips of light burned my eyes awake. I must have just rolled over. Damn it! I'd forgotten to fully close my blinds last night. Mental note: replace Venetians with curtains ASAP. 
I refuse to open my eyes just yet. Take me back to that dream. What was it? Uh, you and I in Paris. Our celebratory trip between our law degrees and our law jobs and our law friends and law parties. We hadn't started the grind yet. It was the moment you gave me that bracelet with a half-heart on it. <laughs> Tacky, I know, but I haven't taken it off since. Was it you? It, it was, but you resembled someone else. Maybe a face I had mentally snapshotted recently. Uh, who knows? It was disappearing faster than my hot water. Best get moving. <clears throat> I just found myself in the laundry instead of my bathroom. Seven years of law school with honors and I still can't navigate my own house. You would roll your eyes in a cute way and steer me in the right direction. But you're not here right now. I'm not quite sure why, though. Did I miss the memo on a business trip? Oh, I'm watching my toast like a hawk at the minute, hoping to God I can at least do that right without your help. I just tried to walk out my front door, but I couldn't. I don't understand. It's not that I didn't have the mental capacity to step outside and face the day. I physically couldn't leave. I grabbed the door handle. I could feel the cold brass in my fist. I could turn it, but nothing happened. I must still be dreaming. Honestly, Danny, where are you? I shouldn't need you here to open doors for me. I tried the windows as well, unlatched them and everything. I pulled and pulled and pulled as hard as I could, and none of them budged. Was this kind, some kind, was this some kind of sick prank from the kids next door? Maybe they super glued our whole house shut. Now that you would laugh at. I am starting to panic, though. I need to get out. The walls are closing in. I was never claustrophobic, right? No, literally, the walls are closing in. Oh, no. Oh, I threw something through a back window. A vase, maybe. It smashed through, but I still couldn't get out. The second I tried to slip my leg out without getting cut, everything melted away. Everything seemed to fade into nothingness right as they were about to sandwich me. The mailman passing did not bat an eyelid at a broken window and a crazy lady trying to escape. God, I must still be dreaming. Our house is gone. I don't know who was squeezing whose hand harder. Surely me, right? You weren't pushing a watermelon out of your body. I'm surprised my bracelet didn't snap off from the tension. Francesca's scream could be heard from Timbuktu. She'll be an opera singer one day, I bet. The first thing I notice is her mop of jet black hair, just like your mother's. I haven't even seen her face yet, and well, they've taken her away. I look at you, and what the f... Who the hell is this? There is this strange man holding my hand and crying with joy and trying to kiss me. Oh, God, these dreams are getting so damn weird. I swipe my hand away and scream for the doctors. Who is this? Where is Danny? He grabs my hand and strokes my forehead to try and calm me. He's talking like he knows me, Danny. He's trying to get me to breathe, so I stop hyperventilating. Where did they take Francesca? They finally bring her back to me, but it's not her. This child has blonde hair like mine. I'm all for pranks and a good laugh, but this just feels like a step too far. 
I take another look at this imposter crying at this foreign child like it's ours. Okay, I'd like to wake up now. I handball the baby over and try to get out of bed, but both my body and the doctors hold me back. Just bring me my baby, I say. I feel a slight prick in my arm as everyone is trying to reassure me that everything is fine. Really, Danny, now is not the time to be MIA. I'll never forgive you for this. This man pretending to be you is doing a terrible job. Oh, oh darn, the walls are moving in again. Bronte's wailing echoed across the garden. She was too young to comprehend you leaving us, but she was feeding off the energy of the day. Everybody was clad in bursting colors of reds and greens and yellows, as requested. I had my arms tightly wrapped around you, not ready to let you go yet. But I had to. The bracelet, scratched and worn, swung gently against you. I knew you would be at peace with your sunflowers. It was a strange passion for such a burly, bearded man. I knelt and let Bronte kiss you one last time before sprinkling you across the flower bed. It was like she knew it was time to be silent as her hysterical cries simmered to a quiet sniffle. Francesca picked her up and held her as tightly as any mother would. I stood for a moment, exhaled, pulled a 180, and left our family behind and retreated to our house, our bedroom, and then our bed... I don't even remember falling asleep. But I awoke on top of our bed, not even in it, still in my sundress and makeup. The house was silent, dark, empty. Where are you, Danny? I wonder if you're here with me now. Maybe I'll start creating your shadow out of coats and towels. I started shuffling around the house appreciating the peacefulness of the middle of the night, and I seemed to have my bearings for a change, even in the dark. This really must be a dream if I can make my way from one end of the house to the other without tripping, banging, or forgetting what I meant to be doing. I returned to the garden where we left you. Anyone seeing a floral-dressed elderly woman at three in the morning in a sunflower garden would be right in thinking she was a mad woman. I hope you're here, Danny. The wind rustled loudly, and a chill flew through me. Oh, I wish I could stay out here forever, but the goosebumps were telling me otherwise. I, I made my way back to the house and grasped the front doorknob. I pushed with the obvious expectation that the door would oblige, but it didn't. I only had enough energy to sigh in frustration. I rattled the door again and again, and nothing. I turned and looked at the garden. Was this your final joke, Danny? Oh, I'll laugh about it one day. Closing my eyes, I let the wind breeze through my hair. The cold didn't bother me. I exhaled and leaned back against the front door, grasping as I fell backwards, and our house disappeared again. Jesus, Mom! Francesca was frantic, wrapping her arm around me, her ringletty black hair flying all over the place as she made sure I wasn't broken. Michael! A, a man I didn't know was now on my other side with a phone stuck to the side of his head. They both bickered as they worked together to pick me up off the floor and return me to my bed. You okay, Ma? 
She didn't wait for a response. She laid me down gently and stroked my forehead warmly. Tucking me in, she rested her hand on mine. She looked down and scoffed half-heartedly. My bracelet was beyond tattered. Francesca's smile fell as she couldn't take her eyes off it. She stroked my hand and tightened it before exhaling, wiping her eyes and leaving the room. I could hear my breathing that night, more than usual. I glanced outside and your sunflowers were in full bloom right outside my window. A nice touch that that curly-haired woman thought of when I moved in. The curtains moved as the summer night air breezed in. I struggled to clasp my hand on my bracelet, but I gripped it as tight as my hand would allow. I didn't need to ask if you were here, Danny. I knew you were. And if you weren't, I'd be with you soon enough. I closed my eyes, ready to finally sleep peacefully. As the walls melted away one last time, Song 3, Trapped, Demo Version, written and performed by Julie Neff. I feel so trapped in my body, so stuck in this house. I feel so lonely and helpless, like I never get out. You said you'd always be with me, you'd always be mine. And it's not just that you're leaving, it's that you're leaving behind.
Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank Stephen Elliott Jackson, Ron Fromstein, Emily Komiyama, Winter Rowan, Tyler Check, and Julie Neff for creating pieces for this episode. And thank you to Jordan Hall, Loren Hereda, and Patricia Casey for their performances. For more information about our artists, visit our website at streamsandvariations.com. And if you like what you heard, tell people. I sometimes feel lonely in here. I'd love to have the company. You can find us at Streams and Variations on Facebook. On Twitter and Instagram, our handle is at variationspod. Let us know what you think by dropping us a comment or questions by email at streamsandvariationspodcast at gmail.com. Our next episode is the seventh in our Talkback series, where we discuss this writing stream with playwrights Stephen Elliott Jackson, Ron Fromstein, and songwriter Julie Neff. Come back and see us again and hear more songs based on stories based on songs. We look forward to you dropping in and giving us a listen. Bye for now.